Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, we are near the end. In fact, Lord willing, we will have, after this week, four more sermons in Hebrews, and then we will have completed our journey uh, through this letter. And so we're going to continue in verses 3 through 17, and I'll read them in just a minute. But we're going to see in this passage, we're going to see an encouragement to endure. And so as we've been going uh, through the book of Hebrews, there's really, there have really been two stages. And so the beginning from, from chapters 1 all the way through really chapter 9, we saw that the superiority of Christ, he is better was the refrain, he's superior. He, he's instituted, inaugurated a new covenant, which is much better than, than Moses and the old and better than Joshua and, and better than, than, than the priests, the sons of Aaron. And so there's this, this lifting up of Jesus is better. And then it shifted into a related stage, but stage two has really shifted towards an exhortation to to persevere. And so this call to endurance has really taken center stage. And so it's really, the, the if you look just up in your Bibles to the last verse of chapter 10, he says, we are not, so he issues another warning, which have, which have been throughout Hebrews, but, but after a, one of the final warnings, he says, we're not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve our souls. And so then he goes right into chapter 11 with this hall of faith, with this list, 40 verses we saw of those who have, who have walked by faith, this cloud of witnesses who all served as examples of what, what persevering faith looks like. And then as, the, as we transitioned into chapter 12, which we looked at last week, there's this focus on Jesus. Let us run the race looking to Jesus. And so Jesus was held forth as a, a supreme exemplar of perseverance and endurance in the face of suffering. That's kind of the, 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 the capstone of this long list of faithful saints. And so as we pick up our passage in Hebrews 12, verses 3 through 17... We're going to see in these verses more encouragement to endure. That's what he's going to, that's what he's going to encourage the, the believers to do. He's going to continue his exhortation. He wants them to persevere. And he wants them to do so, especially in light of the potential suffering that's in front of them or that they're, they're going through. And how he does this, what we'll see, which is, which is in, important in understanding this, this passage, is to encourage them. He wants them to reframe how they view suffering or persecution. He wants them to understand the reality behind human hardship and suffering. Because I think for them, much like for us, the human tendency, and I hear this often as a pastor, the human tendency is to view hardship or difficulty or suffering or, or health crises or, or cancer diagnosis. We, we experience difficulty and our natural human tendency is to say, what? Why, why is this happening? Why is God dealing with me this way? Why is he punishing me? What have I done wrong? And so we often, our human tendency is to to see human suffering as evidence of God's forsaking us, of abandonment. Why is my life so hard right now? What have I done that God's punishing punishing me for? Why, what did I do to deserve this hardship or this suffering Oftentimes, and this is just the reality of life in a fallen world, oftentimes it's hard to reconcile the goodness and loving kindness of the Lord with human suffering and hardship. The two do not seem compatible. Therefore, any difficulty or hardship immediately leads the the sufferer to ask the question, why is God punishing me? And what the author of Hebrews is wanting to do in chapter 12 is turning that natural impulse on its head. Because he wants them to know the reality is, instead of being evidence of God's abandonment of them, 
suffering, potential persecution, is actually evidence of God's continued care of them. So, so it reframes what they're going through. Suffering, trials, difficulties must be seen not as evidence of a vindictive heart of God, but as evidence of a loving heart of a heavenly father. That is how the experience of Christian suffering in this world must be framed, and that's what the author is aiming to do. And hopefully you see when when suffering is framed this way, when persecution is framed this way, and difficulty is framed this way, when we can trust the heart of our Heavenly Father in the midst of suffering, sorrow, and loss, when we can trust Him, when we can stand upon the rock-solid foundation of His care for us, when we can do that, endurance is possible. And so in these verses, the author is going to encourage endurance in the face of suffering by showing that suffering is not incompatible with God's sovereign care. Or to put it more simply, suffering in the life of the Christian is not evidence of being forgotten by God, but evidence of being loved by God. Now, I recognize here at the outset, this is not an easy reality to to wrap your mind around. I don't pretend to know what what you sitting there have gone through, maybe right now what you're going through. I don't know, and I don't pretend to know. Some of you have been through suffering that, that I have no idea about. And I don't pretend to know, but I do know that in light of this passage, in light of the, the testimony of, of Scripture, the nature of God's sovereign care for His children must shape our understanding of any past, present, or future suffering. Because we have a heavenly Father. And that ought to shape how we view difficulty, hardship, and suffering. Because come what may, the life of the Christian in this fallen world is a life that's lived under sovereign care of a heavenly Father. So let's read the passage. Hebrews chapter 12, I'm going to start in verse 3. I'm going to read through verse 17. So you can follow along. We'll have the words on the screen, uh, but you can also follow along in your copy of God's Word. So Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 3, we read, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Quote, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves. And the Lord chastises every son whom he receives. End quote. Verse 7, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. What son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children, and you're not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. And for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Strive for peace with everyone. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. And see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. 
For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, even though he sought it with tears. Let me pray for us as we, as we look at these, these verses. Now, Father, we, we confess this is your word, and we are those, those of us who have, who have come to you through Christ, we come to you as your children. And so I ask that you would help us to respect and submit to your fatherly care of us. From this day forward, would we be confident in your love and care for us, and would we endure as your children? It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, as we work through these verses, there's, there's three points that we'll work through, uh, one at a time. And so we're going to work through the outline up there. First, we'll see the, the, the call to consider Jesus in verses 3 and 4. And again, all of these are, are his encouragement to endure. And so first, he's going to encourage us to endure by considering Jesus, verses 3 and 4. He's going to encourage us by, by calling us to remember our identity, that, that we're children. That's there in verses 5 through 11. And then finally, he's going to encourage us with, with a series of exhortations, which, which can be summed up by saying, don't give up. They're in verses 12 through 17. And so those are the, the points that we'll work through. So look there, verse, verses 3 and 4, the first exhortation, consider Jesus. And so if you remember last week when, when Will preached on verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12, that, that, that passage, those verses set forth this athletic analogy that, that, that is simply to encourage us to run, to run the race that's set before us. And then in verse 2, Jesus was set forth as the example, as someone who had not only endured, but had finished the race and had received his reward. That's why he's seated at the right hand of the Father. He had finished. And so he's the example, and he's set forth as that example. And so as verse 3 picks up, he's continuing the example of Jesus. So look there, verse 3. Consider him. Not named here, but, but we know exactly who he is. Consider Jesus who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And so he says, consider Jesus who endured hostility against himself. And so what this seems to say, in that he's continuing to focus on Jesus, is that what Jesus went through, so we all know what Jesus went through. He was, he was opposed by sinners, right, by, by, the, by the authorities, by those who opposed God in his plan and sending the Messiah. And he seems to say that the Hebrews are going through a similar hostility. So, so it seems like, we don't know the exact circumstances, but it doesn't seem like the Hebrews are in grave sin and that this, this, this suffering is a result of their sin. It seems like they are suffering in a similar way that Jesus did. They're being, they're being opposed by sinners. And this Jesus, he says, consider him because he endured and persevered in the face of sinful opposition from human agents. He didn't give up. And so the, the logic of verse 3 is consider him so that purpose you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So consider Jesus when it gets hard, when you want to throw in the tower, think about Jesus, who not only endured, but, but our relationship with God is dependent on him not giving up and throwing in the towel. But it's not only that he suffered, that he endured suffering that should encourage them, but it's also he endured much worse suffering than they were facing. Look at, that, look at what he says there in verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And so they, they, they have suffered at the hands of sinners. They, they've struggled against sin. Remember, he, he even er, talked about earlier, a few chapters ago, that, that they, they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. So, so they identified with those who were in prison. So they did so willingly. They suffered. 
But his point is that they had not yet suffered to the point of shedding their own blood, to the point of death. They haven't been martyred at this point. Now, maybe they would be, but they hadn't yet. Their suffering, the author wants to remind them, hadn't reached the level of Jesus himself, which means since he walked through suffering that led, through, led to death, they should certainly be encouraged to walk through suffering that only leads to a loss of possessions or a loss of reputation. That's his point. I mean, I, I thought about an example. It's like when you watch one of these, the, these TV shows on HGTV, and you have an hour time slot, and in the start to finish, you see this house that, that's in disrepair, that, that's in shambles, and, and this crew comes in, and in a matter of an hour on this TV show, it goes from, from, from this, this rundown house to, to a beautiful, picture-perfect home. The entire house and property is transformed in an hour. And you watch that, and you think, wow, if they can do that, Surely I can fix that door. They rebuilt a house. Surely I can paint a room or, or fix a light. Right? So, so you see their progress, their accomplishment, and it far exceeds anything on your list, and you're encouraged, you're like, okay, I don't have to do that, but, but I can do this. I think this is similar to the author of Hebrews is, is wanting the suffering of Jesus to function in the lives of his audience. Consider him. He hung on the cross. That's what his opposition and hostility led to. So don't grow weary. Don't grow faint-hearted. And remember, his, his suffering and his death on the cross is, is actually the, the only reason that you can be in relationship with God as Father. And so suffer well, following the footsteps of your Savior and High Priest. I mean, there's a similar logic that, that Peter uses in 1 Peter 2 where Peter is writing to Christians and he's encouraging them to endure suffering because suffering, Peter says, is what Christians are called to do. And the reason he knows that Christians, Peter, are called to suffer is because Christ suffered for us, Peter says, leaving us an example so that we might follow in his steps. And so Christ is our example when it comes to endurance and perseverance in the face of suffering. He endured the cross. And so the author of Hebrews exhorts us, consider him. Think about him. Remember him. And it's after encouraging his readers to consider Jesus who endured great suffering that the author then transitions to the second point there in verses 5 through 11 where he reminds his readers of their identity. So look, second, remember your identity, verses 5 through 11. Now as we come to this section, remember what I said at the beginning. The author is wanting to reframe the understanding, the Christian perspective on difficulty, on persecution, on suffering, namely that it's not incompatible with God's sovereign loving care. And so he goes from Jesus to this, to, to the relationship of them as sons, and who better to illustrate the point he's trying to make than Jesus himself. Remember, Jesus was the divine son, the only son, the unique son, but, but he was the loved son, the beloved one. And this loved son faced opposition, hostility, and suffering to the point of death. And so if anyone speaks to, to the contrary of the natural human assumption, the experience of the Son of God speaks loudly and clearly that suffering is not incompatible with God's love. Jesus suffered. Jesus was loved. The two can be together. I mean, I thought about the story of Job. What another good example of the righteous sufferer, someone whose suffering isn't evidence of God's displeasure. His friends couldn't get that. His friends thought he's suffering, he's done something wrong, and the book of Job stands as a testimony to no, suffering is not evidence of God's displeasure. 
And so the point in here in verses 5 through 11 that the author of Hebrews is going to emphasize, he wants to remind his readers that they are God's children. He wants to do so because knowing with certainty the relational status between them and God would encourage them to endure. We can do it because we know God loves us. We know he's our father. We know that we are under his care. And so he wants them to endure. And so look there at the, the, the rhetorical question in verse 5. Not only consider Jesus, but have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons, as children? And then he quotes there in, in, in Hebrews 12, he brings in a quote from Proverbs 3. And remember, he's wanting them to reframe the perspective. And so he establishes that suffering is not the result of punishment, but of discipline, of training. That's what he wants to do. Which means that all suffering, all trials, all sorrow experienced by Christians in this world originates in the fatherly heart of God, which is completely backwards from the world's thinking. And this mindset is uniquely encouraging to the Christian's thinking. So he's going to quote this passage from Proverbs 3 to show them that their suffering is not incompatible with their identity as sons. And I mean, this reality is the Christian way to think about life in this world. This is how Christians persevere in the midst of suffering, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of persecution. I mean, hopefully you think about the words that we sing when we gather together, but did you realize that, that you sang, whether you meant it or not, you sang, to the Lord you give and take away. Maybe you were late, maybe you didn't get in here, but we sing a song, blessed be the name of the Lord, and it says you give and take away. You give and take away. Well, take away what? Would it give what? You, life. Possessions, freedom, safety, security, you name it, the Christian Christ. You give, God, and you take away. And regardless of whether it's giving or taking away, my heart will say what? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Do you know how crazy that sounds to a, to a watching world? It is backwards, but it is Christian. It is how Christians live in this world. The other song is saying, let goods and kindreds go, this mortal life also. That, that means take my physical life, take all my possessions. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. That's the cry of the Christian and will be until we are with the Lord. The Christian lives in a world filled with suffering and sorrow because we know that the Lord is God. Now it's not easy it's not pleasant, but it's bearable and endurable because it doesn't happen apart from God's sovereign care. You give, you take away. You are God, I'm not. A God who is sovereign in the midst of persecution and suffering and hardship is often the only refuge for the Christian in this world. Sometimes that's all you have. Everything else is screaming, God's left you. But God being God is sometimes all you have and that in that moment, is enough. Now, a lot more can and, and probably should be said regarding God's sovereignty and human suffering, but, but as we look to Hebrews 12, 5 through 11, understanding that suffering does not contradict the status of child is essential. That's how we view hardship as Christians. That's what he wants these readers to, to understand about what they're going through. And so he quotes Proverbs 3 in order to encourage his readers in the face of suffering. So look there at the beginning of his quotation there in the middle of verse 5. So the, so, so the exhortation that, that addresses them as, as, as sons, quote, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, 
nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And so that's his point. That's the key. That's the explanation in the, in, the, in, the, in the mind of the author of Hebrews of what's going on. As they're tempted to wonder why they were going through what they were going through or, or why they, they should endure the persecution that's in front of them, he quotes this Proverbs 3, 11 and 12 passage in order to explain why they're going through what they're going through. And his explanation does, in fact, reframe their perspective. The perspective to be taken is to recognize suffering in all its forms as, as discipline. As discipline, or maybe, uh, maybe your translation uses this word, I think maybe a better word, is, is as training. Discipline or training in that from the Lord himself. As God's people experience suffering, rejection, and persecution, when the why question is considered, the right perspective isn't, well, God's abandoned you, or that you've been cut off from God's love, or that giving up is the only way forward. That's not the solution. The solution is instead, the right perspective instead, the reality behind your circumstances instead is that God is treating you as his child. And that his discipline is purposeful. And that you can endure it because it is for your good. I mean, that's the point of verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. The believer who has come to God through Jesus Christ can have unshakable confidence in the midst of suffering because he or she is a child of the Heavenly Father. Endurance is possible. Endurance is necessary. Discipline is evidence of kinship. And so the ESV translation says it is for discipline you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. I think I, think I would prefer, I think better translations would be if you have the NIV or if you have the, the CSB, which says endure hardship as discipline. Or the CSB, endure suffering as discipline. And I prefer these translations because they make the point crystal clear. Suffering and hardship come to us from God's fatherly heart. It comes because he's treating us as children. And so we, we, we know the why. We don't know the specifics, but we know his heart behind the circumstances that we go through. And so the rest of these verses here further illustrate this point. And we'll look at them in just a second, but, but I just want to make one thing clear as we think about this. One thing that, that's easy to assume about discipline that isn't always true. And so as, as, as you hear this, that God is disciplining you, endure discipline because God's treating you as sons, as, I, as I've read this in the past, when I think about discipline, I tend to only think about discipline as a response to wrongdoing, right? As a parent to four young children, discipline is almost always in response to, to wrongdoing, right? And so when I think about discipline, I think about it primarily as, as corrective. You do something wrong, you get disciplined, which is part of the equation, but if that's the only way we understand discipline, when we read that suffering and hardship are simply the result of God's fatherly discipline, we're tempted to think what? That God is disciplining us because of our sin. That God is correcting us, which, we have to be clear, is sometimes the case. right? God does that. So he does discipline Christians for their sin, but that's not always the case. We, we, we must not remove totally correction from our category of discipline. However, correction for wrongdoing is not the only purpose for discipline, not with parents, not with the Lord, but there's also this other category of discipline that would be simply instructive or formative discipline. And I think that's what's primarily in view here in Hebrews chapter 12. I think this is type of a formative or instructive discipline. And I say that because what I said earlier, there isn't any evidence that the Hebrews are in sin and that they're facing persecution because of sin. It seems that they're in a culture that they're holding fast to Jesus is bringing about some, some persecution or some pressure. 
And the author of Hebrews wants them to see that as God's, God's training for them. So which means this, we must have a category of discipline that is not primarily a result of wrongdoing, but simply a result of God's fatherly care and training. That's why, that's why I want to use the word training, because I think that helps at least my mind understand the idea that's, that's at play here. God is training his children through this hardship. And this training isn't because they're doing something wrong, but it's because God wants them to be stronger, wants them to mature, to grow. I mean, it's like the track athlete whose coach forces her to run 800-meter repeats day after day after day after day, right? The coach knows that the result of this training will result in a stronger runner. So, so, so she may already be a strong runner, but this, this training is going to make her stronger and stronger. And it's purposeful. So the coach is putting her through this hardship because it's for her, her good. He's training her. And because she knows and trusts her coach, she endures and she perseveres. And she shows up day after day, and she runs the two laps. And she rests, and she runs the two laps again. It's, it's a formative training. And so I think this is the framework the author of Hebrews is wanting his readers to adopt. That endurance is the goal, and to encourage them, he reminds them that discipline is the result of God's parental purpose, purposes, which makes endurance possible. He wants them to know, you can do it. God is treating you as sons, and it's for your own good. Look there at verses 7 and 8. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as, a, you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. The, the King James would say, you are bastards. You have no parents if you're not disciplined. And so he reverses the natural human assumption. Instead of hardship or suffering being evidence of God's removal, discipline as divine training is evidence that God is actually caring about you. That's what we tell our kids over and over and over. We discipline you because we love you. If we didn't love you, we would let you do whatever you want. And it's hard to get through the, the head of a nine-year-old, but, but that's what we say, and it's true. Because we love, we discipline. And a lack of discipline would evidence a lack of a relationship with the Lord. So instead of throwing the talent and giving up in the face of hardship, suffering, and persecution, the Christian takes heart. I can do this because, because my God, my Father loves me. Look there, Harry continues, verse 9. Besides this, we've, we've all had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For, for they, he's talking about his earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he, that is God, disciplines us for our good. That, here's the purpose, that we may share in his holiness. And so, so he's, he's playing on the ideal human relationship between parent and child. And, in, and the ideal human relationship is that parents train or discipline and children respect and submit. And that's the ideal human relationship. Children respect and submit to their parents. It's part of what it means to be a child. You are under the authority of your parents. And the author of Hebrews says... If we respect our, our earthly parents when they disciplined us, how much more ought we, ought we to respect our Heavenly Father? And even more so, we did so to, to fathers, earthly parents, who are only temporarily doing what they thought best. As a dad, I get it wrong sometimes. Maybe a lot of times. But I'm trying, I'm trying to do my best. And I expect my children to submit and obey and trust me. How much more ought we to submit and trust the Heavenly Father who isn't guessing 
He's not guessing what's going to bring about the best result. He's not saying, okay, if I, if I keep this snack away, then maybe they'll eat lunch. No, he knows if I do this, this is going to happen. And this is for their good. We are children of a perfect heavenly father whose discipline and training is never wasted nor misguided. He knows exactly what you need. He will never give you too much. He will never give you too little. He will never second guess himself. He does exactly what he knows is best for you and for me. And that is the Christian framework for hardship in this life. And that framework changes the way you view hardship, doesn't it? God is a sovereign father, which means that nothing you go through, nothing you experience happens apart from his fatherly care. Not even one hair will fall from your head apart from your father. In God's family, no discipline is futile or wasted. Now, I can't can't explain everything, but I can tell you that without a shadow of a doubt. In God's family, nothing is wasted. No amount of suffering or hardship is useless. It's all purposeful. And according to verse 10, we see the purpose. He disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. So we go through hardship and difficulty that we might become more like him. Holiness is the goal. We can't, we can't lose that. We are disciplined that we might be more holy, that we might be more Christ-like, that we might get more of God. I mean, at the end of the day, maybe you need to hear this, at the end of the day, God doesn't really care if you're healthy or wealthy or prosperous or safe. At the end of the day. Though sometimes you are. And we have to receive those. You give. You give. Thank you. Every good gift is from the, the Father up above. Sometimes that is what we experience. But verse 10 tells us that what God cares about, far above anything else, is that you're holy. And so if losing everything is going to make you more holy, then he's going to do it. And we ought to, we ought to trust him. The ultimate result of the Heavenly Father's discipline is that we might be more like him. That's what God's aiming at, that we might be more like Christ. And according to this passage, he often uses hardship and suffering to accomplish that. And as we saw in verse 14, that won't be accomplished finally until we see him. Which means we're always going to be growing in need of divine discipline and training. Always, until we see the Lord face to face, we are going to be in need of growth. Which means we're going to be in need of training and discipline. But that shouldn't discourage you, that should encourage you. You can't endure because you're going to get there. We can and we must endure, even when it's painful. I mean, notice he, he's no stranger to, to the effects of discipline. All discipline is painful for the moment. I think he's, he knows what it's like to be at the Cecil household. It's never pleasant. Never pleasant. But the end result, the big picture that only God can see, is, is that it, it's, the results are purposeful and they lead to good. And that makes endurance possible. Well, let me just, there, there's just three points of application before you look finally at the, the last section, but, but three points of application from, from this, this, this mindset here. And first is simply to trust the Father's heart, trust his heart. I mean, in one sense, our suffering here is small, in the sense that we're American Christians in the West. And so, so, so if we read Open Doors or, or the, the, the Voice of the Martyrs, as, as we read about the experience of, of a Christian's brothers and sisters across the world, we look at our suffering in our life here, and it's pretty small. So that's one thing. In another sense, our suffering is great. And, and so even as American Christians in the West, 
Humans in a fallen world experience great sorrow and suffering, tragedy and loss. And whether small or great, in America or Africa, the Christian trusts the Father's heart because children know that God's heart is love. And so if you're here and your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are part of a family. If, if every member of your earthly family abandons you or has abandoned you, you still are welcomed and secure in the Heavenly Father's family because of Jesus. And you can trust the heart of your Father. You will never be totally abandoned. So trust His heart. And the second point here related to this trust in His heart, let these roots go deep. Let this reality go deep into your heart. I mean, depending on who you talk to, persecution may be coming here soon. More severe persecution in, in America. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe that's what suffering will look like for us in, in the next decade. Or maybe you're going to go through severe personal tragedy in the coming weeks or months or years. But you will go through hardship, sorrow, loss. And when that comes... How are you going to respond? When the storm is going all around you, when everything around you says God doesn't love you, he's abandoned you, he's forgotten your address, when everything around you screams that, what are you going to believe about your relationship with the Lord? Are you going to be a, like a little sapling who just blows over and, and goes down the street with no roots? Or are you going to be like, like an like a, like a oak tree that, that, that pl- plants itself deep and grows and grows and grows and can withstand storm after storm after storm. Will you stand form with roots going deep? Will you know deep, deep down in your heart of hearts that regardless of what the circumstances scream, that God loves you, that he's your father, and that he's treating you as a child? This must be the anchor for the Christian because sorrow, suffering, loss is par for the course in a fallen world. And, and as a pastor, I want your roots to go deep. I, I'm going to be right there beside you, but I want your roots to go deeper than, than just my encouragement. I want you to trust, not that your pastors care for you, but that your Father in heaven loves you. And I think I should also just add, this isn't only extreme suffering that I'm talking about. I, I think this is, this is an exhaustive this has exhaustive reach. Difficult circumstances in your life, life stages, difficult people, difficult children, difficult co-workers, neighbors, maybe it's a hard marriage, all of the difficulties that you endure or that you're called to endure are part of training. And so you, believer, can endure because all difficulty is evidence that God is for you and is training you. And the last point, just to make clear here, is, is the, the exhortation that, that if you're here today and your faith is not in Jesus Christ, you do not have God as this Father. God is not the Father over all of humankind in the same way. And so having this confidence that I'm talking about, having this perspective on hardship and suffering is not the birthright of every human. God is not the father of all people in the same way. God is the father of those who've been reconciled to him through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. 
And so if you're not here and you don't know, if you are here and you don't know Christ, you don't have God as a heavenly father. It is only through Jesus that you do. And so if you don't, if your faith isn't in Jesus, I would call you to, to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved and be reconciled and brought into the family of God. And then to pray with all the saints throughout all the ages, our father in heaven. That's a title that's waiting for you through Jesus Christ. And so don't hear me proclaim these magnificent promises and assume that they're yours if if you are not trusting in Jesus. I would urge you to, to put your faith in him. You can know God as this father today, now. Well, then finally, the, the, the last section that we'll work through, verses 12 through 17, third point, don't give up. So after establishing the reality of the relationship between God and his readers, namely that they're his children, the author closes this section by continuing to encourage them with a series of exhortations. He just kind of lists them off. After reframing the perspective on what they're going through, the author exhorts them once again to keep pressing on. So look there at verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather healed. And so this imagery here, most commentators agree that this imagery is from Isaiah chapter 35. And so you can go back and make a note there and go back and read that. But in Isaiah 35, the, the, the prophet Isaiah is looking forward to this final day when the glory of the Lord will be revealed. So there's this, this end time salvation that's finally going to be accomplished. And, and Isaiah is pointing forward to that hope. And, the, and, and Isaiah says, therefore, lift drooping hands and strengthen weak knees. There, there's hope up ahead. And so the author of Hebrews is quoting Isaiah 35, using the same language in order to encourage his readers in the same way. Fulfillment is coming. The final blessing is still on its way. The fulfillment, the inheritance, the, the kingdom, that unshakable kingdom, it's still in, in, in process. It's still in route. But it is coming, so strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. That's what he's saying. Just don't give up. Walk straight paths. This is probably a reference back to the, the, the Proverbs 11 passage. But, but his point is the, the, the path of the righteous, right? This is the path that the Lord paves for his children. He's saying, hey, just, just walk in the straight paths. Persevere down the path of discipline that you're on, that the Lord has you on. Continue persevering in the midst of Discipline and training. And his point is, we step back, his point for the Hebrew readers is that a failure to do so, with that which would lead to what is lame being put out of joint or dislocated, right? Don't fall away from Christ. That's what he's saying. If you get off the path, you're going to be disqualified. You're, you're going to dislocate your knee or your ankle and you're not going to finish the race. So, so don't do that. Don't leave the straight path. Don't, don't give in. Don't throw in the towel. Don't turn from Christ, which is the danger of not persevering. Falling away is what would result if drooping hands and weak knees aren't strengthened. If they give up, they're going to lose. And they're not going to get the reward. They're not going to receive what's been promised to them. Forsaking Christ is what would result if the readers refuse to walk straight paths, continuing to pursue Christ. And so his point, is be, his point is simply the finish line is ahead, so keep going. Then he lists, verses 14 through 17, a, 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 a list of these concrete exhortations. So first, he calls for peace and holiness. Look there at verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Peace. Strive for peace. This 
here his call is, is peace for everyone. This is not universal. That is, that is what Christians are called to. His peace here is certainly restricted to the peace within the community, the Christian community that they're living within. The relationships of the believers there in that context were dependent on everyone, every member striving for peace with everyone else. And so if you think about the context as God's people who are facing pressure and hostility from those outside the community, the prospect of endurance required unity and peace among those inside. If you're being attacked from the outside and you're attacking one another from the inside, you're not going to make it. So he says, strive for peace. Strive for peace with everyone. That peace ought to mark every local church. Peace within. Peace ought to mark every local church congregation. That peace doesn't come automatically. It doesn't come apart from striving for it. And that striving is done by those within, all of those within. As was mentioned earlier in the book of Hebrews, perseverance is a community project. And one way that you encourage others to hold fast until the end by, is by striving for peace with brothers and sisters. But it's not only peace, it's not only strive for peace, but also strive for holiness. And this is the holiness that he says is required to see the Lord. As we saw up in verse 10, the purpose of God's fatherly discipline is that we might share in his holiness, which means that God is committed to making us holy and that we are committed to be holy. Do you know that? God is training us, disciplining us so that we might be holy and we are to strive for holiness. We've been made holy, we are being made holy, and we are to strive to be holy. That's his point. They are to pursue, Christians are to pursue holiness without which we will see the Lord. Meaning if we, if we don't get there, we're not going to see God. And so here in Hebrews 12, the way that we strive for holiness is simply by persevering through our course of discipline. So, so don't think, okay, read my Bible more, pray more, do this more. No, no. In this context, the way you strive for holiness is you just keep persevering, holding fast to Christ in the midst of discipline. I mean, that's the logic. If God is training us through hardship in order that we might share in his holiness, then our striving for holiness simply means we persevere through our course of discipline. We persevere. We hold fast to Christ. We continue forward knowing that God has a plan and purpose. And then verse 15 continues, the emphasis on this corporate responsibility. Not only is the Christian to strive for peace with everyone, the Christian is also required to, look there, verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God See to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Verse 16, and see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. And so the exhortation is, see to it, main clause, three things. See to it no one fails to obtain the grace of God. See to it that no root of bitterness springs up, and see to it that no one's like Esau. And so that, that, that's how we persevere. That's how we strive. Every Christian, and, and the two things from the, the, this, this triad here, the two emphases are that every Christian has a responsibility for every other Christian, and that that responsibility ensures everyone finishes the race. And that's what, these, that's what these exhortations are about. This call, the call to make sure that others are not doing these things, right? When it says, see to it that no one, this certainly includes personal responsibility, but the focus is on the responsibility of others, I'm to see to it that all of you do and don't do these things. Don't let anyone fail to obtain the grace of God. Now, I need to make sure I don't, but I need to make sure you don't. In other words, his point is, don't let your brother or sister fall short. 
Don't let them fall in the desert because of unbelief. Encourage them. Remind them of what's true. Gather regularly with them. Be a source of of provocation and, and encouragement so that they might not fall away, that they might obtain the grace of God. They might finish the race. That's the call of every Christian. Second, don't let any root of bitterness spring up and cause trouble. Now, the image here is not primarily about bitterness as an attitude, but the root of bitterness, even the ESV puts that in quotation marks, because the root of bitterness is a person. And we get that because this is a reference to Deuteronomy 29.18. And so the root of bitterness is not an attitude, but it's a person. So listen, I'm just going to read Deuteronomy 29, verse 18 and 19. So here we're all the way back in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy, but notice what, what Moses says. Beware lest there be among you, covenant community, a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the other gods. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. And that root is the one who says, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, he blesses himself in his heart saying, well, I'm going to be safe. Though I walk away, from the Lord to serve other gods, I'm safe. Beware of this person, is what, the, what Deuteronomy says. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. Meaning, this person that abandons the Lord is not safe, and he's going to take a lot of people with him. And that is the root of bitterness that the author of Hebrews is saying, don't let this person be among you. So the root of bitterness is the, the, the person who's turning away from the Lord. The, the bitter root is the person who abandons the Lord and thinks to themselves that they're going to be safe and secure from God's final judgment. The author of Hebrews says, don't let that happen. Don't let a bitter root be among Fox Hill Road Baptist Church. And we're not passive in preventing that. We are called to see to it that it doesn't happen. And we do that by encouraging and exhorting. So when, when someone starts taking the road away, we, get it, we run ahead of them and we say, get back on the path. What are you doing? There's a corporate responsibility. I mean, back in Hebrews chapter 3, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Beware. That's what evil, unbelieving hearts, they lead us away from God. We've given community to keep us. Verse 13 of Hebrews 3, but don't do that, but exhort one another every day. And so the way to see it is that a bitter root doesn't grow up. The way to see that a bitter root doesn't grow up, the remedy is to exhort one another. And then finally says, see to it that no one's like Esau, who's described as sexually immoral and unholy. And so see to it that no one's as sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Now Esau here is the opposite example of what came in Hebrews chapter 11, the opposite example of Christ himself. So so think that, Esau and all of of Hebrews 11. Rather than faithful perseverance, Esau gave it all away. He kicked it away. He didn't want it. And the event that's highlighted here as the warning, as the example not to follow, is what takes place in Genesis 25 when Esau goes to his brother. He was the firstborn. He had the promise. And he's hungry, and he smells a pot of porridge or a stew, some lentil stew that his brother made. And he says, okay, you can have the birthright. Just give me the stew. And so he gives it all away. He sold his birthright for a single meal. And so the, the, the dynamic at work here in Esau, and what the author of Hebrews, why he brings it up here, is that the future promises to Esau, the promise of, of the possession of God's blessings that have been passed to him from his father that were his right, 
these blessings that he couldn't see that were coming were forfeited for what he could see here and now. I don't care what I can't see. I smell and I see some stew and that's what I want. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give what I can't see away for what I can see. And that's the opposite of what faithful perseverance looks like. We give up what we can see for what we can't see. Right? That was the point of Hebrews 11. And so Esau gave up the promise just because he was hungry. And it's the future versus the present dynamic that the author of Hebrews wants to emphasize to his readers. Esau gave up the promise in order to ease his physical discomfort. And the listeners of the book of Hebrews might consider giving up the promise in order to ease their social discomfort. They've been given something precious and beautiful in the gospel, and they must not forsake it for the comforts and joys of this present age. We must not sell our birthright for a pot of porridge. And that's his main point. That's why he brings up Esau. Don't give up the promises. Don't forfeit what God has promised to those who persevere. Because Esau, as the story goes on, even after he realized what he had done, he couldn't go back and undo it. doesn't mention the, the, the dishonesty or the scheming of his brother and mother. That's not the point. The point is that Esau gave it up and he couldn't get it back. Even though he goes back to his father and through tears, he's asking, please bless me. Bless me. I, I want it. He couldn't get it back. He lost the promise. And the point for the reason in Hebrews is simply to warn them. You saw Esau is a negative example to avoid. Avoid the example of Esau is done by persevering, not forsaking, not, not giving up the future hope for pleasant experience, present experiences. And so the author concludes this passage by, by exhorting his readers, never give up. And the last word that I'll say before I pray for us is, is what we see from this last section, point of application. I, I, can't, I can't leave without at least saying to every Christian here who's part of this local body or part of another local body, you are your brother's keeper. You are, right? That, that, that line, do you know where that line comes from? It comes from the brother who murdered his son or his brother. And the Lord says, hey, where's your brother? Am I my brother's keeper? Right? That's a sinful response. To deny responsibility for your brother is the heart of a sinful person. As Christians, we are our brother and sister's keeper. And so don't neglect your responsibility. Perseverance is a community project, and God has given us here, members of this church, this community, these people. And you're responsible to ensure that we all together, we're all in one big boat going towards the finish, and we're not letting anyone jump out. And it's on all of us to keep all of us inside. So let us keep our brothers and sisters. Let us press on together through whatever may come, knowing and trusting that we have a heavenly Father who loves us. Let me pray for us as we, as we close.